shrink-wrapped, shelved, and uniformly faced. I wonder why we taste of panic. Trauma trafficked and packaged in a square that's 80% air. Like the creatures at Nim, I'm becoming aware that I'm a Kellogg or a Lay, built fragile to waste away and less transformed by magic sugars. Sweet, sugary science, just to the taste of the giants. Additives plenty, taste profile mapped. All of us branded, red-handed, shrink-wrapped. Bravo, Aaron. Has that poem evolved since you last performed it for me? Mm, You mean yesterday? Yes. No. No. I guess I was tired. So there's a a couple sentences that I forgot and I liked. Yeah, I woke up like the amateur poet that I am. I'm really, really excited about the pun Mm shrink-wrapped. As in, you know, Mm pre-packaged, soulless, commoditized, and also reliant on therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I understand it's, it's kind of a negative poem, and I know that in our education series, we've already talked a lot about standardization, and this mm-hmm. is pretty much just an, just an anti-standardization poem. Mm-hmm. So I thought we should start the episode with the most positive thing, mm-hmm. which is our kids' place. I love it. That was kind of the extent of the prompt that I guess we came up for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Design a place for kids in the solo scene, that is educational, that isn't a school, and presumably isn't a home. Or a library. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So last week we designed the Solestine Gymnasium, inspired by the Greek gymnasium. And so this question was born out of that. What about a space for kids? Because the Solestine Gymnasium is for 18 plus, presumably. <laughs> yes. So where do the kids go while the parents are at the gym? <laughs> right. And they're going to go to this place. So I know that you were really puffing up your kid's place. You said, my kid's place is going to be way better than yours, I Alicia. did say that, yes. You said, you're actually going to make a fool of yourself, Alicia, when you try. <laughs> I didn't go that hard on it. So lay it on me. The floor is mine. The floor is yours. So, okay. I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I've always been very inspired by this quote that Kanye gave on a podcast. Kanye, Kanye West. Kanye West. Kanye West, okay. That it, actually, now he's just named Ye. Yeah, but yeah. I think if I had said that, maybe our demographic wouldn't have understood who I was referring to. <laughs> but um, and he said that well, if we want people to stay off the internet so much and video games and engage more in the real world, we have to make the real world as cool as video games. Mm-hmm. And I think there's no demographic for whom that's truer than children, mm-hmm. because they're the ones who are like, why would I want to go and pound the pavement when I could be playing some Fortnite? Mm-hmm. So when I was thinking of a place for kids that is wholesome social and also educational i was trying to take some of the some of the tenets of video games Mm -hmm. as in the funness Mm -hmm. so mine is called the labyrinth of learning cool that's the place i don't know if you can see on my paper but i originally had it called the labyrinth of wisdom but then i remembered that a couple weeks ago i designed wisdom park yes so i didn't want the branding to get confused Mm -hmm. in the solar scene educational infrastructure so the labyrinth of learning um, and the tagline is a real-life video game. Neat. Just from that name, do you want to cast some assertions, some guesses? What do you think it's going to be like? I'm picturing the maze in Harry Potter mm-hmm. where they're trying to get to the cup in the center, mm-hmm. but along the way there's some spiders, there's mm. some spooky things, there's some challenges, there's some intellectual challenges. So that's my guess. That was certainly one inspiration. Another one also, Harry Potter, was... Actually, I don't think you've gotten to this in the books yet, so I don't know if I should spoil it for you. Spoiler alert, okay. But the book's been out for like 14 years now, so yeah, it's too late. But um, the Ravenclaw common room, the Ravenclaw being the house for the smart kids, mm-hmm. um, the way that you get into it is by answering a riddle. Okay. And I don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure that there is that a lot of the riddles, there is no right answer. So it, mm. your answer just has to demonstrate original thought, okay. essentially, which I love that idea. And especially on the theme of today, which is kind of how do we promote original thought in children, this could be a labyrinth that is pretty much as you described. It's a race to get to the center. I was also thinking about like escape rooms Mm -hmm. or a corn maze, but that's very seasonal, which I don't Mm -hmm. like. But it's based around knowledge. So maybe there's riddles, maybe there's math questions. One little scenario I had was that you have to reach the middle Mm -hmm. to find, say, a dictionary. And the dictionary enables you to get out of the maze, which is what you're ultimately trying to do. Okay. Because the way out might be uh, blocked by difficult or obscure words. Okay. So the dictionary will teach you these words on your way out. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like a magic 
what's it called? Magic school bus episode, I think. Yeah. It's a little bit like that. Cool. Meanwhile, you're being chased by a minotaur. Okay. Who could be a person obviously dressed up as a minotaur. Mm -hmm. But if he gets you, game's over. Okay. So this is also kind of classically inspired. It's teaching kids about the myth as they're reenacting it. Mm -hmm. um, and the minotaur, the way that you kind of defeat him is every time he confronts you, you have to rhyme at him with original poetry. And that will sew him for a while. Okay. He's still relentless, so you have to be on your toes the whole time. So it teaches you um, to kind of think under pressure, to think as a team, because I think it'll be a, a group-based exercise, mm -hmm. and to rhyme, which I think is great. Yeah. There could also be like a sphinx who mm -hmm. offers you weapons and food. <laughs> <laughs> not, they're not real weapons. but Steals they're, and pens. They're, it, you know, it's like a, a, a foam sword or something. Mm -hmm. But you have to correctly answer the riddles. Okay. There could be things on the walls, you know, clues, or there could be questions about other languages or math or geography I thought could be really mm -hmm. good because um, the whole thing is kind of an exercise in, in spatial reasoning and navigation. Mm -hmm. And I was also inspired a little bit by the dungeons in the Zelda franchise mm -hmm. because something I've always thought about those is that they're, they're actually quite educational and they, they require you to navigate space in a way that so often we, we genuinely aren't in the real world anymore. Like, it's funny because in a video game where everything is obviously pre-mapped and predetermined, you can be more lost than you can be in the real world when usually there's signs everywhere and you've got a map at your fingertips and things like this. What do you think about this? Would you like to partake in this? I would. Mm -hmm. I like escape rooms. I've yeah. never really done an official one, only really small scale ones. So I like that this is a lot more physical. I feel like a lot of the escape rooms are very intellectual simple progression there's not many ways that you could go wrong exactly that's what i like about maze because it's practically mm -hmm. infinite right mm -hmm. and i think a lot of the soft skills that a, a labyrinth teaches you like memory mm -hmm. logic and and yeah navigation are things that kind of have slipped through the cracks in not just education system but the world in general i mean mm -hmm. we tried to do a maze uh, last autumn or so mm -hmm. and i consider us pretty good at thinking on our feet and quite a good team yes but and i'm pretty sure it was a maze designed mostly for children yes but we struggled genuinely yeah we had this map and you had to find different points and get stamps it's true we were given a map yeah and we still <laughs> still got lost yeah so it was we, we made it and it was certainly an adventure you were yeah. looking out there's like reference points of like a silo in the distance exactly. or a barn in the distance like okay you orient yourself it was definitely a rewarding experience and, and I liked that but I think those are muscles that don't often get exercised mm -hmm. and I think for children because there's so many different ways you could approach it like they there's nothing to stop them from just making a map as they go it's or true. leaving markers you know the minotaur that's why I kind of mentioned that there's mm -hmm. there's all these different ways that you could go about it and I think also it's it's proven that when you're under pressure you you will remember something more right like that will form mm -hmm. memories so those words from a dictionary maybe if they weren't being chased by a minotaur they wouldn't remember them mm -hmm. but then every time after that they heard like Cytoplasm. Yeah, cytoplasm or like vermilion, they mm -hmm. would know. They would. So let me just make sure that I'm getting this straight. Yes, so yes. Monday nights is the seven-year-old labyrinth. Okay. So all the seven-year-olds go. Sure. And they try and get to this labyrinth. Well, what I like about it is that there's so many different ways it can, it can be set up. It can be changed. Mm -hmm. It could be by age group like that, mm -hmm. or it could be competitive you could have like four people against each other or something okay and it's also very easily changeable mm -hmm. like one thing that i find with a lot of other educational centers like science uh buildings you mm -hmm. know what i'm talking about or like uh, museums for children yeah they're always the same you almost back. always the same right there'll be like a new exhibit or two every year mm -hmm. but this one there's nothing to stop it from changing every week or cool. every night yeah i like that so my children's center was just a children's gymnasium mm. and i know it's lame because i took it literally when we were piggybacking off of last week but i had a few fun ideas yeah one i spend a lot of time at parks you may have noticed and one thing i always notice with the playgrounds is that they're they have ages on them so it's like zero to five but they have stages which i think is cool so i think at this children's gymnasium, there will be playgrounds much 
smaller age range. So it's like, okay, you can literally just unleash your one-year-old on this and they'll, they're not going to hurt themselves with really high sides, but still the staged kind of, okay, I've conquered this first stage. I'm going to move up because okay. I feel like kids really like that and it allows them to be creative. I just think playgrounds are incredibly beneficial. Think about how many times like your neighborhood and my neighborhood had like two playgrounds maybe and you'd go there sometimes multiple times a day because it's the only place to go when you're a kid. But you'd come up with so many different games, so many different ways yeah. to use it. Yeah. And I think that's really great for kids. So I just imagined a lot of jungle gyms. It gives kids the, the resources and then they can do whatever they want with it. Like mm -hmm. talking about infinitely replayable, like, mm -hmm. sorry to sound too much like an indoor kid, but mm -hmm. um, the idea of playgrounds that are, there's so many different levels of it. It's like Mario, right? Where yeah. um, if it's kind of, it's kind of like an open world platformer where there's, yeah. There's multiple ways that they can figure out how to climb it. Mm -hmm. And even once they have solved it and they're, mm -hmm. they're good at climbing it, they can all get together and play grounders or, or yeah. something even more creative than that. Yeah, exactly. So I pictured kids just a lot of playgrounds because I feel like you learn a lot about space and yourself and creativity is really enacted on playgrounds. And the next thing I thought that the kids gymnasium would have would be a stage, but not just a stage, a stage with a lot of props and materials and things that they could use to put on productions of any sort. So did you have like a tickle trunk growing up? A what? A tickle trunk? No, I don't know no. what that is. A tickle trunk is basically a box of clothes, but like dress up clothes. Okay. And so we had like the same one my entire life. So Halloween would roll around and you say, oh, what's in the tickle trunk? Obviously the same thing as last year, mm -hmm. but then you get to kind of use it in a new way. And then you're playing dress up. Oh, me and my sisters used to always make like movies. You So using those materials in really fun ways. And I think it would build independence because oh ripped this you can't just leave it ripped in the gymnasium you have to fix it or work together with your fellow children to fix it and so I just thought kind of like this almost well to kids seemingly infinite supply of resources that they could use to do fun things with and then that leads me into the art studio which I think should exist because what kid doesn't love a bunch of paints? You love a bunch of paints. It's true. I mean, I like to consider myself the modern Van Gogh. You do, yes. But my issue is that so many of my paintings, I mean, people don't understand them. Mm. I think because the colors tend to blend into a brownish, a brownish hue. mix. Yes. Yeah. So people can't wrap their head around the fact that those colors were once distinct distinct so yeah, yeah what i like to do is blend them all together mm. in pursuit of a higher shade mm. but ultimately yeah i'm not appreciating my time that's for sure <laughs> so i think this kid's art studio i'm also picturing this gymnasium with no adults so like Ooh. kids can just kind of govern themselves which Un is another part of it and soup and soup obviously like i do want there to be kids of all ages so it's like obviously we can't just unleash all the 18 month olds into one space but perhaps it could be a bit more community taking care of one another because i was inspired by the community we live in there's like 12 year olds pushing babies in strollers holding hands with like six year olds and it's like what on earth because that doesn't happen most other places but it's like it's a really tight-knit community it seems and like the kids all kind of take care of each other which is neat and i was kind of inspired by that so I'm not exactly sure how the adult supervision will go. There'll probably be like the stage. Maybe you'll have to be like eight or older and mm -hmm. so on. Um, but the studio, the art studio, I pictured there'd be some being some of the like community elders working there. Kids can watch, kids can ask questions and so on. And I also think there should be an international center. So like in the solo scene, things are going to be like super localized, but I imagine there'll be a lot of connections kind of intentionally with surrounding communities, surrounding countries, provinces, whatever the government structure is wherever in the world. So I just picture there being these places where kids can kind of go to learn about other community centers that are existing around the world. So maybe mm. they work with, oh, okay, in this community center, we're doing a virtual meetup. And yeah, I was thinking about having some something like that, some kind of permanent... Um, and having it be between these official centers is a good idea. Mm -hmm. Some kind of permanent room where there's just a big wall 
Mm-hmm. There's just one giant Zoom meeting or something. Yeah, like, like I don't exactly know what it like is. Like a UN, but for kids. Yeah. And via Zoom. I don't know exactly how it would work, but like maybe there's like a weekly workshop that, okay, the kids at this center are going to put it on and then it's going to be aired mm-hmm. over here and so on, teaching each other a recipe, teaching each other, or even just like recapping, kind of like pen pals. Exactly I guess. like that. Yeah, so, because I don't want. Like with the small communities, I don't want everyone to be isolated and unconnected because then it doesn't build empathy. But I think this is a good way to keep connected. And then, oh, I went on an exchange here. I'm going to start a program with this country I went to or this province I went to. Yeah, so that and a couple more things. As I said, the kids' governance, but also like a model UN sort of situation. I feel like kids need the opportunity to practice debate skills and practice rhetoric and all those fun things. And I think a little model you end would be fun. When I hear kids governance, I think of in recess where the mm-hmm. kindergartners lived in their little segregated uh, yeah. penned off corner of the playground. Mm-hmm. And they were just like <laughs> the most tribal um, type of uh, society you could imagine. Yeah. Led by violence. <laughs> yeah. But, um, um, so you say there's, this is just everyone from zero to 18. Yeah. What do you envision like the 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 year old kids doing? Yeah. So I think a couple more things that will be involved is kitchens and gardens and what else did I have? Lectures, gymnastics, martial arts, just like all the things that kids do nowadays. Like, oh, I have martial arts practice. Oh, I have ballet class, but all kind of localized and uniform, like all kind of coordinated that parents don't have to drop people off all over the world or all over the city. No, it's that's like a, that's just a great bring idea. them to this area. It sounds like a very big building. Well, I pictured it being like acres and acres. One other thing that I forgot to mention, which was crucial, is the Forbidden Forest Ooh. that would be here. There's going to be this mythos that's been like kind of built over time. <laughs> like it's obviously going to be safe. Like we're not going to just have like actual minotaurs running around okay. or lions. But there's, oh, this part is really spooky. Just kind of a fun... Just like a lot of space that's safe. Hmm. And it's like, yeah, supervised, but like the adults aren't intervening. If there's a conflict between the kids, like it's a good opportunity to work it out. And yeah, so the older kids, I think, would be doing a bit of instruction in all of these activities, but also just kind of exploration. They could go to the art classes themselves. They could be leveling up in whatever martial art they choose. Mm-hmm. They could be cooking in the kitchen. Again, there'd be some like adults around they could be learning from. Could be some kind of badge system like in the guides. Yeah, or the something Scouts. like that. One of the ideas that I had before I settled on the labyrinth was basically a mall without shops. Mm-hmm. So I was like, that sounds a little bit like what you're doing, except instead yeah. of shops, it's that's the dojo, Activities. that's the yeah. kitchen, that's the paint room, something like mm-hmm. that. Because one of my, weirdly, a strong memory I have is when we were going around a mall and it was mostly just a regular mall with shops, but then there was this one empty or almost empty uh, shop room place that was just completely open, no people in there. They just had two ping pong tables. Yeah. You could just play. Yeah. And we were absolutely shocked because mm-hmm. we had I'd never seen anything like that before. Yeah. But I thought it was brilliant. And of course we played some ping pong. Yeah. And I, that's kind of the atmosphere that I feel that's what I'm picturing. Would be your place. Yeah, a bit less like harsh lighting. Like obviously it'd be a very Solocene design, very natural and breathable. But I do picture, okay, I'm going to go to the gymnasium, mom. See you and see you later. You have a name for it? No. What about the kidnasium? Perfect. He does it again. He does it. How <laughs> does he do it? Anyway, <laughs> speaking of painting and lessons, I wanted to paint this week's organism of the week, mm-hmm. which is the flax. Show it to Aaron, show it to people watching on YouTube. That's lovely. I would like to act surprised, but you didn't do a very good job of hiding it today. Because it had to dry and we live in the same (laughs) apartment. So basically the flax and the image that I drew, it's a very stocky, fibrous plant. But then the actual flax seeds that we all know and love come from the flowers once they go to seed. And that's what you harvest and use. I do like eating Flax seeds. Love eating flax. Love linen. Big linen guy. Well, you you are. I am, yeah. Yeah. So flax are cool because they're just like a flowering plant. They're just like flowers. But then their little seeds are so useful and they have so many omega-3s. And I learned that there's two types of flax seeds, which are pretty much the same nutritionally, 
but the golden flax have a bit more omega-3. And then the normal flax, like the brown flax seeds, are a little bit less omega-3, but still good for you. Yeah. And they're also used to make linseed oil. You've heard of that. Textiles and an animal feed. Mm-hmm. But I learned that too many flax seeds can be toxic unless they're boiled. So it's like don't eat like a bag of flax at one time unless you've boiled them. I don't know who's going to do that. Not me. There's also a great song. I think it's uh, it's a piano song. I think it's by Debussy called Girl with the Flax in Hair. Cool. Recommend mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And the flax flower, which I didn't really realize what it looked like, is my favorite color of blue, which I was trying very hard to emulate in this image. None of them landed on it. Let's see it again. It's a very... So the blue that the flax seed is, or the flax flower, is, you know, like early in the morning when the sky is just starting to become blue? Okay. So it's not like sky blue, but it's like blue. It's that color. Kind of a dark, but at the same time light blue. (laughs) Hard to explain. Sounds like you really like this flower. I do. They're really pretty. Also, let me know that I almost guessed that even before I saw the painting. Mm -hmm. Because I said... I'm going to guess your organism of the week. I said it's going to be some kind of tropical plant. Mm-hmm. And the flax definitely grows in warm places. Temperate places. So I was very close. Okay. Yeah. I knew it would be a plant. I was just feeling... Well, I'm feeling, feeling very summery. Mm-hmm. And I love flowers. I love flax. On that note, teaching people to think. Yeah. Much I like... thought of this organism of the week. Yeah. And who taught you how to think like that? I don't know. <laughs> So the question was, in the vein of last week's, how do we teach people how to speak? Mm-hmm. How do we teach people how to think? Yes. Because free thought is the seed of free speech. Mm-hmm. And I came up with three categories, it's a, or three, um, three methods, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of a crossover with the last section of today's episode, which is about educational philosophies. Because, of course, the educational philosophies that we uh, prefer or prioritize, especially when we're designing a solo scene in our heads, it's just naturally going to be the ones that produce good thinkers. Mm-hmm. But the first kind of state or prerequisite that I think is necessary to teach thought is boredom. I was going to say that too. Oh, that was my no. guess. I wrote it down and everything. <laughs> but it's like you're bored. You need to literally think of a way to occupy yourself. Yeah. Or you're going to be bored. It's true. Let the kids be bored. Um, I had a, a little example, which was something that occupied me from, let's say, age 9 to 12 or 13 or what, was these little comics that I used to draw. You know them? Grassboy. Grassboy comics. Grassboy was the name of the um, superhero. Each was two pages of printer papers. So it was like four, four sides, really. And there, there was a cast of recurring characters, heroes and villains. It was kind of a, a superhero I guess it was the MCU before it was, really it was the, the MCU. It was prerequisite to the MCU. Yeah. 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 Um, I should be seeking some money from them. But especially, why well, I don't want to talk about the villain. But um, <laughs> but the reason I mention this is because I distinctly remember when I came up with the idea for Grass Boy. Not, not that it was a great idea or anything, but it was something that occupied me for a long time and, mm-hmm. and did help give me things to do, especially in school, which was often quite boring. It was just a summer day and I was watching TV. And it was one of those days when you're watching TV and you're like, it was when you kind of, um, as a child, it's like you kind of zone out watching shows that you don't uh, like or care about, mm-hmm. but then you kind of come to yeah. and you wake up and you're like, wait, what am, what am I doing? And it's been mm-hmm. three hours. Yeah. And right beside the television was the window and I looked outside and do you know what was on the ground? Grass. A lot of it. A lot of grass. And then I just, it just snapped like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, in this example, it was the, the mindlessly numbing um, state of daytime television that that mm. produced a sense of boredom in me but we could skip the tv step and just get bored and just do yeah. nothing and then it encourages creativity and also contemplation mm-hmm. and contemplation is just a really great thing and what i like about creativity is because what it also um, provides not just along with like the work that you're creating is a bunch of problems and a bunch of issues mm-hmm. so for instance when i'm making the comics it's like oh, I I want to draw this guy, but I don't have the right color. So maybe I'm going to blend these two other things. Or Mm -hmm. I want to write about this, but I don't know about it. So I'm going to research into this a little bit. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to bind these. I don't know, you know, how to organize them. Oh, how are other comics uh, 
distributed or labeled or anything like that. So creativity, what I, what I like about it is that it's pretty much just a series of troubleshooting in mm. pursuit of the original vision. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when you want to do anything, it's like, for example, which you've probably, you're probably sick and tired of hearing about these pants that I made that I'm wearing. <laughs> yeah. But I had never sewn something from a pattern, really. Like, I've always used kind of freehand patterns. So doing this and having to follow all the instructions, it says, okay, there's this type of stitch you need. So I need to go down a rabbit hole and learn about this stitch and how to do it and so on. Oh, there's this technique you need to use and then you have to go. And then by the time I created a single pair of pants, I learned a bunch of new things about sewing and about fabrics and about like the way that textiles work. Because for example, I was putting in the waistband and then I was like, why did it stretch? Like I measured it correctly. And I had to learn all about that. So now the next time I make a pair of pants or a shirt, I know so much more. And I'm sure that will then inspire me to learn a bunch of new things. And all of this came out of like just one single task, make a pair of pants and yeah. learn so a bunch it, of stuff. It, it's still a creative task, but it's a, it's a very educational creative task. Mm -hmm. And another good thing about boredom, I think, is that it helps you or rather it inspires you to, along with misery it's cousin mm -hmm. it inspires you to try to think of ways to improve the world mm -hmm. either by alleviating your boredom so for yeah. instance uh, there's a youtuber this just came to me but there's a youtuber that we used to watch called casey neistat right mm -hmm. and he or maybe it was his friend were always talking about how on the subway in new york it would be nice if maybe when you looked out the window there'd be like an array of images right that like caused a, a film kind of when you looked at it mm -hmm. Like when you flip through one of those books, mm -hmm. the flip book, I think it's called. Yeah. Because they were bored looking out the window. Yeah. So like instances like that, it's like misery and boredom help you think of ways to change the circumstances so they don't produce misery and boredom and thus the mm -hmm. world is gradually improved. Yeah. I think that's what brought us to today though, where we can constantly watch TV because someone was like, oh, I'm bored. What would fix this? A box that shows you a bunch of yeah. images. No, I mean, that's why, so we, that's why we need to... We need now we need to like manually enforce these, mm -hmm. these things on us and that's actually a, a thing that i think can be a future function of schools mm -hmm. this can just be a place enforced without technology or the internet mm -hmm. because homes are never really going to be that because that's on the parents and the parents are never going to you know like uniformly mm -hmm. parents won't impose such harsh restrictions on their kids mm -hmm. but schools can actually be that place yeah that encourage order <laughs> yeah. sounds so funny but yeah, but I mean, like, obviously not the whole day. No, you know, I don't want kids but, going but, to school and being bored. But study, we study hall, I think, is a, yeah. is a great uh, idea. Exactly. One thing that I thought of that kind of goes along with that is that we need to stop being so accustomed to being always given the answers, always able to access the answers. So it does go with not having access to the internet all of the time. Yeah. But, oh, I'm in this class and I have this question for this project that I'm doing. I can't Google it, so you have to try and brain like brainstorm Use your way brain, to do it. Yes. Yeah. And then <laughs> when you do come up with an answer, even if it's bad, you're then going to remember the proper response to that situation or the way to fix that problem. Even if you don't like manifest it out of nowhere, even if oh you try something that doesn't work, you have to ask a teacher, ask a friend, or Google it. You're gonna remember the answer a lot more than if you hadn't tried first and you just Googled it. Yeah, I had yeah. that note too, which was basically just presenting students with hard or sometimes even deliberately impossible questions. Yeah, for and sure. This kind of goes along with my last note, which was great art slash literature, because I think mm -hmm. most great art, um, one way of conceptualizing is that it is just a hard problem. Mm -hmm. When you're, when you're, let's say you're first um, confronted with a Monet painting and you're absolutely compelled to stare at it, part of the, the problem or the, the, um, the questions I ask you is, why am I so compelled by this? So that's like a, something to, to solve or to figure out by staring at it and learning about it and things. Mm -hmm. And there's the, the formal elements, which is, wow, what is it about the construction of this painting uh, visually that's so compelling? Mm -hmm. And there's also maybe the, the thematic element, which is what's this trying to say about life that I can, uh, that I can learn? And I think both of those are, are great things for kids to ponder. I mean, it's not, it can never be a bad thing for children to come out of their education with a really strong sense of design. I think that would be really beneficial to the world. And also if they're, you know, if they've been um, instructed by all the great painters and writers and musicians of the last like thousand years, and that's a pretty good education. 
So mm -hmm. uh, great art and literature from a young age, I think. Yeah, I agree. My final thoughts are that kids need to be exposed and adults as well to good thinkers throughout history, people who asked good questions, people who like changed systems because if you're never exposed, if you're, okay, so you're presented the history of Martin Luther King Jr. and you're just exposed to kind of like the outcome of the situation, then it's like, yeah, you're gonna learn who he was, what he did. But if you're listening to his speeches, maybe reading about his entire history, you're gonna kind of see along the way where he came to conclusions and came to the right questions to ask and the right ways to come up with answers to those questions, I suppose. And just like people who asked right questions that change systems so that kids can then learn to ask questions and change systems. Yeah, that's yeah. why I think biographies are really cool. Yeah. We always talk about how it would be a great thing for, for schools to offer classes just about a, a person. Mm -hmm. um, and learning in depth that person and how they operated, how they thought. Mm -hmm. I agree. And it doesn't also have to be someone who's just honorable or just mm -hmm. good. It could be someone who's a little bit more gray. I think that yeah. might be more interesting, depending on the age of the kids, obviously. Yeah. The final thing I had was philosophy from a young age. I didn't get exposed to philosophy until I was at a university level. And I think that was not beneficial to me. I think had I had the language to communicate my because I mean like we have like this innate tendency to have philosophical thoughts like kids from a young age are asking why is the sky blue why do people do this and so it's like when you give really like artificial answers like oh it's just like when you don't give the in-depth answers to kids I think it's selling them short and then not giving them the language to like fully express their questions and their feelings and their experiences so I think, yeah, just philosophy from a young age gives them the language to think and be better thinkers. I agree about that, but I would reword it so that it's not um, the case that parents or instructors should give answers to kids. Yeah. Because it, a lot of the questions there aren't answers to, mm -hmm. and that's what makes them so great. But definitely giving them the, the resources, the vocabulary, mm -hmm. the references, and the knowledge to uh, come up with their own answers mm -hmm. would, would be really cool. And yeah. I had that as well, which was philosophical questions, scientific unknowns. Yeah. Like if it was something like, what do you think antimatter is to mm -hmm. like a 13-year-old? They don't know what antimatter is because mm -hmm. most um, high-level scientists don't fully know what antimatter is. Yeah. But it lets them think about it and start researching it and using yeah. their imagination. And and that's that's a great thing. And, mm -hmm. and along these lines, I was thinking either words or books or concepts, which the students aren't fully comfortable with. Like mm -hmm. we have this ideal ratio of things that we know to things that we don't know and when we're in a subject like that that's the best way that we can grow right like when mm -hmm. they say um as a kid when you're trying to find a book which matches your reading level mm -hmm. they're like read a page and if there's say five to ten words that you don't know that's a good amount mm -hmm. pick that book because that's a little bit more than what you know and mm -hmm. then you'll you'll learn that which i think is great but sometimes i think it can be really beneficial to read a book that has like 40 percent words you don't know Basically, I'm talking about topics like that. Yeah. That can be helpful. I think it can be helpful in small doses so it doesn't like discourage everyone. But no, I think yeah, if not it was, discouraging, but it sometimes do that. Yeah, but if it was from a young age, you're going to be less discouraged because the way that it's going now, it's like for years and years, you're never challenged. And then when you reach your first challenge, you're like, well. Yeah, we don't know how to face it. We don't know how to think. Yeah. Um, and my final point just on the great art slash literature is that the way that art challenges your views is really good because I think the, maybe the key um, tenet of a good thinker is that they rethink a lot. There's this quote which was, the best thinking is rethinking, mm -hmm. meaning they can change their mind a lot. And it doesn't mean they're flaky, but it just means they're open. And I, I think so often as we get older, our, our views, our opinions, our thoughts on things, even when confronted with pretty um, concrete and really inarguable evidence to the mm -hmm. contrary, they just get more solidified. We, mm -hmm. we hear a lot about this politically. And I think that if we teach kids from a young age to be more flexible to opposing views or other theories and to be constantly learning, basically, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's what it is. Yeah, it's crucial. And one final thought I had to mention, a film education, in the same way that since literature was for so many years the dominant form of storytelling and art on the, on the mass scale, that... English class was full of a, a canon of books 
I think today, since film is more popular than lit literature, mm -hmm. I don't think it should completely replace books because I love books in, in school and I think books are amazing. But I do think there should be a presence for, I think so. for great films and the beginning of a, a canon like there has been with literature for so long. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. I wonder if it's happening at all because we kind of... I remember we watched a few films in school, hmm. but I do think that's crucial because I never appreciated film until I started learning about film history on my own time and from you. And then now it's like I can watch a film that would be traditionally like, oh, that's just like schlock. That's just like whatever. You can watch it and be like, as bad as this was, it had these artistic merits and this is where I went wrong. This is where I could have been better. Exactly. And it enhances, I find, your experience of watching all movies. Because I used to only like, like when I first started getting into film, I was like, I only liked like The Shape of Water and those like really, really filmy films that were like groundbreaking. But now I can appreciate... Nacho Libre. Nacho Libre, yes. Yeah. Which is, it's, I'm telling you, it has some really prestige cinematography, but mm -hmm. not just uh, blockbuster movies, but the, mm -hmm. the whole medium of video has been mm -hmm. democratized in the same way that literature was. You know, yeah. there was a time when it was like, everyone's writing poetry. Now mm -hmm. it's like, everyone's making movies, yeah. but we don't get the same kind of education about it. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah. I think that's important. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. Two really good speakers here. <laughs> <laughs> this is my most favorite topic in education, which is educational philosophy. So I wanted to do the series. And this is our last episode, second last episode. Well, we haven't series. come up with any questions yet. So, yeah. yeah, there'll be one more next week to conclude. And then mm -hmm. we're putting it out of his misery. <laughs> yeah. No, it's but been fun. To wrap up this semester... We want to talk about our favorite educational philosophies, which is important. And I think if you're interested in education at all, and like you don't have to want to become a teacher, but if you want to make YouTube videos or you want to write a book, it's good to learn about these people who have historically been groundbreaking in education. And to start off, the original groundbreaker, Plato himself. Right. And I love Plato. Big fan of most of his work, you know. But <laughs> he was kind of like the father of the modern education system to me. He saw education as a means for achieving social and personal justice. So he thought if everyone was equitably educated, all at the exact same level, democracy will work. But if half your population is going to private school, the other half is going to public school, democracy is not going to work because there's such huge disparities. What I do like in education that is kind of different from this is the way that they do it in Germany and a lot of other European countries, it seems, is there's like, yeah, there's different choices for educational philosophies you can put your kids in, but they're all equally great. Whereas here, it's like everywhere, everywhere is almost equally bad. It's like you can, you can put them in this school or that school, but like... It's not going to matter. Pick your poison kind of thing. Yikes. Yeah. But <laughs> I liked... His thoughts on that. He said, in order for an individual to thrive, they must know themselves, their work, and what is good. And obviously what is good varies a bit depending on the culture of a place. It's mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. you can't just have a theocracy and have everything instructed from a single perspective. But I think allowing kids to kind of discover for themselves what is good and what is just is important in education. Whereas today it's almost like we're afraid to approach any spiritual or any ethical subjects. And everything's just instructed from like a, a really, really objective. Yeah, well, but I think that that kind of uh, dogmatic rationalism uh, imposed by the state, because the state's mm -hmm. the ones who teach the ethics in the, in the school, right? Yeah. And I don't think Plato envisioned that, um, that level of government influence mm -hmm. um, is itself a, a kind of moral uh, yeah. education, right? It's true. Yeah, like education is just to create workers technically today. Exactly. And I think it should be to create people. <laughs> um, a few more things that he postulated was that education should be a lifelong endeavor, which I think will be the case in the Solacene. He also said that play and dialogue were the two main techniques for education. So play at all ages, not just like toddlers. Like, everyone should be, like, really hands-on exploring and playing and discovering things for themselves and dialogue, which I think is really not the case, but it's crucial. It's, like, asking questions, having answers, how yeah. we learn. Yeah. I'm not so well-versed in educational philosophies as Alicia is, 
she's actually, I don't know if people watching on the YouTube video can notice, referencing an essay that she herself wrote. So I don't know <laughs> if that's self-plagiarism or whatever, but I don't have that luxury. So I went to my favorite educator, which is... Wikipedia? Um, Wikipedia, right? Mm. He's on the internet and... He's just, really, he's a really good guy. Just says a lot of, a lot of great stuff. Mm. But no, really what I did was I, I thought of the ways that I think the Solacing should teach people to think, like I just mentioned, and then mm -hmm. I just tried to find philosophies that enable that. Cool and I came up with two, and it's kind of a blend, and it seems kind of funny because I think they're opposed okay. um, on the surface. Mm -hmm. So one is called unschooling, and the other one is called classical education. Yes. Unschooling is basically the freest form of education. I don't mm -hmm. even know if it can be called a philosophy because it seems to me like it's almost the absence of a philosophy. Mm -hmm. It's very child-led and natural learning using their curiosity and like homeschooling but without the the schooling curriculum. without the curriculum yeah, yeah for the most part like there are instructors in the forms of parents and supervisors and you mm -hmm. know other adult guides who provide resources and guidance and there are some kind of more directed nodes of unschooling i would say there's one mm -hmm. that i thought was interesting called world schooling yes which is based around travel mm -hmm. and this is funny to me because when we've always talked in the future about how do how do we want to raise our kids yeah sounds like world schooling to me a little bit yeah i think so if we you know are lucky enough to have the luxury of travel and another one is called project-based unschooling mm. which is basically like we're building a barn yeah. you're helping like that mm. i think i think it's really cool yeah i just think that that natural state of curiosity being preserved is something that is so hard to do in a standardized classroom mm -hmm. at least one in, that you're doing for what is it like 40 hours a week when you're doing it sometimes, I think that's really great. And I think the socialization is really great. I think the structure can be fun. Mm -hmm. I think that the the idea, like I said, of having a, a canon and something that everyone's reading from, I think a classroom is great in these elements. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, I think the freedom of, of uh, barefoot on the grass mm -hmm. and just touching the trees can be really, really great. Mm -hmm. And the other philosophy is classical education, which was very big in like the 1800s. Mm -hmm. And this is basically all built around the idea of the great books, especially the great books as it was of the Western civilization, the Western canon, mm -hmm. and as well as these, the liberal arts, the natural sciences. And it's kind of based on three phases of development of the individual. The first of which is primary education, which teaches how to learn. Secondary education, which teaches kind of the fundamental uh, various skills and concepts. And the tertiary uh, stage, which is apprenticeship or the mm -hmm. preparation to pursue uh, kind of an academic profession. And as well as this, classical education also prioritizes things that we already mentioned, like logic, rhetoric, grammar, history, mm -hmm. just those kind of, uh, I guess they're social sciences or, or liberal arts that aren't really anywhere today. Mm -hmm. There's no room for computer science here. Sorry. Okay, that's <laughs> fair. I think when we're talking about education and philosophy, it's like, as you said, these two things seem like they're completely opposite. Yeah. But it's like we're in school, and I think in the Solocene, we'll be in school 12 to 15 years of our lives. I don't yeah, think yeah. it's a I bad it's thing. a long time. So it's like you can have all of these things. You could have a semester of computer science and, yeah, like, get really yeah. good at it. Like, all of these things can fit in. But right now it's like we're in school for 15 years, and nothing's fit, nothing fits in. It's yeah. just all kind of like... It's not very well put together. Yeah, it's all kind of flaky. So some of my other inspos... I also, I said there's no room for computer science. Like, I think there should be computer science, but yeah. I, I just talk about the spirit of it. The spirit of it. So some of my other philosophies are, they're all kind of go together. They're all kind of blend into one another. But basically in the mid... 1800s, like the early 1900s, there were a bunch of philosophers and psychologists and physicians who were basically revolutionizing the way that we teach. So there's John Piaget and then John Dewey and Marie Montessori. So all of those guys, plus like a bunch of other people at the same time, but kind of all over the world were saying the way we've been teaching is basically assuming that everyone could be told something and everyone will internalize it the same way. So that's how it was up until these guys were around. And we thought we can give a group of 20 kids a lesson. They all should learn it. If they don't, something wrong with them. 
But it's like what they said is, no, every single person could have the exact same information. They're going to process it differently because of their experiences and their histories, what they know, how their brains work. Like, so that's called constructivist education, which is we're constructing, we're building on people's previous experiences. We're not just lecturing. Like, we need to work together with the kids, basically. And so ever since they were around, education has been heading in that direction all over the world in different ways. Like, now the teachers are a lot more conscious of the abilities and histories of their students. And I also think that these philosophers and these people, they really talked about how kids develop by interacting with other kids and with other people. And I think this is something that will be really crucial in the solo scene is intergenerational learning. Did Piaget ever mention anything like the labyrinth of learning? Or? He didn't mention the labyrinth. Okay. But he did mention that we all need to just kind of use all five senses to learn. Well, you know what? If they're in the labyrinth, they're that's using similar. All the senses. Because I was thinking the Minotaur could have a big smell. Okay, a big so smell. So they know when he's coming. Cool. Um, <laughs> inspired by the Johns, as I'll refer to them, okay. Marie Montessori. Yeah, she created an entire philosophy of education, which is still used today all over the world. It's mainly a primary education, which is three to four age groups in the classroom. And she really likes, liked rest in peace. She really liked having really long blocks of time for people to, for the kids to have a choice of activities that they can, okay, we're going to choose at the beginning of our block. And then the teacher will facilitate questions, facilitate the learning. They make a choice and they have to like commit to it for like a really long time. And that is to encourage kids to experience the flow state from a young age. Because right now it's very segmented yeah. the way that we learn because there's that commonly held statistic of our attention spans are like 20 minutes, mm. which is what it was when we were kids. They're probably shorter now. Yeah. In theory, that's what they say. They're like, it's 20 minutes. So you have to change activities every 20 minutes. But in reality, if you keep segmenting our days, we're going to just have shorter and shorter attention spans. So yeah, that's she true. The goal says, should be to, to lengthen them, not to indulge exactly. our, our shorter ones. Yeah. And so... Her three tenets are the age group's open-ended activities. So like, here's a box of balls, have fun. Or like, here's a bunch of beads, do something with them. You don't have to make a necklace. You can make a skipping rope. You can make a wall hanging, like just very open-ended things. But yeah, the teachers as facilitators instead of lecturers. And then my final philosophy, which I live, laugh, love, my favorite thing I've ever like come across, which I came across kind of by chance in a course was Waldorf education, which is like so different and so wildly unique to me compared to everything that I've ever experienced. And it is basically this philosophy, which was born out of Rudolf Steiner's, it's not a religion, his philosophy of anthropocene. Is that how it's pronounced? Don't know. Anthroposophy. That's basically this thing that he came up with is that there's a spiritual realm that we all can like tap into. But his educational philosophy isn't like denominational. It isn't anything like that. But basically the way that the education kind of came out of his philosophy was that you need to nurture the mind, body, and heart of kids. You can't just nurture the mind. You need to do it all or else they're not going to develop into good people. It sounds a little bit Greek as well as the, the idea of Plato's world of ideal forms that some people can mm. uh, recognize and interact with. Yeah. So his school philosophy, which is super unique to the school, like there's thousands of the schools across the world, but every single one builds their own curriculums, has their own kind of standardization for like the types of people they um, hire and so on. But it's a very equitable system. It's not like super expensive to get into or anything. A lot of fundraising to allow anyone who wants in in and basically the kids in the morning will have some pretty like theory heavy instruction but then as the day goes on things get more and more creative but it's all instructed through a creative lens so like the science and the math is experiential so it's 
you're going to, here's the stuff, mess around with it, and then reinforce their findings or correct their findings through the text in the literature. Mm -hmm. And it really just fosters a connection with like the world. The kids are working on farms, they have gardens, they have plays. All the classrooms are color coded, which I find fun. <laughs> they all, there's like a progress of fiber arts and musical instruments. Mm -hmm. So in like the primary, they're all playing the recorder, but then by the end, they all can play like the violin or the guitar Whoa. or whatever. Like that's it's, something, I mean, that's a good example because there's a parallel to that mm -hmm. with our public education here. Yeah. We learned the recorder, which is great. Mm -hmm. You know, like grades three and four. Yeah. And then... That, Never again. Yeah. <laughs> but they do it, yeah, with like a lot of things. It's like, so in kindergarten, the kids are tying knots, but then by the end, they can all crochet or knit a sweater. Mm. Like it's all these fun kind of, it's called um, it's called a spiral curriculum, which I think is really excellent. Like it's all super well planned and, you know, like curated. It's very well put together. It yeah. all fits together like a, like a puzzle. Yeah, exactly. It, it actually makes sense. Which I think the solo scene will be. It's like, okay. We're teaching the kids this specific type of craft in primary, and they're going to see it again and again and again. It's like Apple. Yes. Whereas right now we've got a little bit of Android. A little bit of Android. Because it's like, yeah, you'd learn the recorder, never touch an instrument again. And I, I always think it's, it's funny when you consider the way that we teach young children mm -hmm. is a certain way, and there's presumably a reason for that. Mm -hmm. But then it just, we drop so much of it yeah. when we get older. And I was like, why do we do that? Yeah. It's obviously good for us because mm -hmm. it helped us grow a lot. Yeah. One other thing that I really like about the Waldorf school is that it's like, okay, this month we're doing science. Instead of like, we're going to sprinkle and water down the science through the whole year. Like it's like very intense and like in depth on everything. It's like, I feel like it's how we learn. It's like, if you're not making these connections, when you're learning them, you're going to forget them and drop them. And then when you're an adult, you're not in the Waldorf school anymore okay, I'm going to learn this new recipe. You're going to have a lot of questions unrelated to the recipe. What's the history of this recipe? What's the... Ingredients. Ingredients. Where do they come from? Yeah, how does this chemically work? How does this, like... How is my body going to, like, react to this meal? Yep, yep. What should I pair it with? Like, it creates these really, like, comprehensive thinkers, and I really like that. Well said. Comprehensive thinkers. I like that. Thanks. That's who inhabits the solocene. Mm -hmm. The solocytes. Comprehensive thinkers. <laughs> Thank you all for being hopefully comprehensive listeners. And we tried to be comprehensive speakers. See you next week. Bye.